I have two titles for our message today out of Luke chapter 23 with Jesus standing before Pilate. We've seen Jesus before the high priest, both of them, Annas and Caiaphas, and we've seen Jesus starting in front of Pilate. He's had his first initial interview, and then Pilate said, I don't find any fault in him. That is the first time that he declared him to be innocent. And when he heard, and we're going to see it today, I won't get ahead a little bit, but here's the two titles that I have. I have two titles. The first one is, did Pilate trap himself? When you see Pilate immediately battling the religious leaders, because that's obviously what's going on. He does not like the religious leaders. We talked about why last week. There were several events that Pilate and the religious leaders had already clashed on. They show up early in the morning with the prisoner. They don't want to tell him what the charges are. He's like, what's the charges? And they say, if you weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't bring him to you. They wouldn't go into the praetorium. So he had to go out to them. So he took Jesus back into the praetorium to question him. So does Pilate do something in this trial that traps him that he cannot do anything else but hand Jesus over to be crucified? That's one of the questions we're going to ask. The second one is, was Pilate manipulated by the religious leaders? Because there are some who say Pilate in his position would not have been manipulated by them. But again, we talked some about this last week and you can refer to that study where we saw that he does have to answer to Tiberius. Tiberius is aware of what's going on. He will eventually be reprimanded and brought back to Rome by Tiberius. And so there is some fear. He's got to keep Jerusalem under control. And it hasn't been under control in the time that he has been there. He is the prefect over the region of Judea from 26 AD until 36 AD or 26 BC until 36 BC. Uh, and um, in, our first, uh, in our first study on the Roman trial, we saw Pilate interviewing Jesus and declaring him innocent. This is Luke 23, verse 4. So Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Now, that's usually the point that you let him go. But when he said that, here's the response that he got. When Pilate heard of Galilee, actually, when he said that, the disciples, uh, the, the religious leaders became very vehement. And they said, this man has misled people from Judea to the Galilee. So here, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man, Jesus, were of Galilee. A, 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 a man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. So King Herod was Herod Antipas's father. The Herod that is in Jerusalem now is Herod Antipas. And I just want to say, whenever you get into the family of the Herods, there's Archelaus, Arstipulus, there's, um, there's Philip, there's Antip Antip uh, uh, Antipas, there's Herod the Great, there's Herod Agrippa. And when you first start hearing about it, it's like all of these Herods just get, get mixed. It's like you put them in one giant pot and stir them around. But the more you hear them, the more you learn, the more you get them straight in your mind, the, the more you start to realize who these different Herods were and it's important to understand that. We find Herod Agrippa a little bit later on in Acts. Here we find Herod Antipas. This is the Herod that put John the Baptist to death. Now, before we looked at what happened when Jesus went and stood before Herod, 
who killed his cousin and the forerunner of Jesus. Before we look at that, let's consider what we know and try to understand Herod Antipas a little bit. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem. Herod the Great was a builder. He, he started to build the temple. It wasn't done until a few decades after Jesus and then finally destroyed, but it was a marvelous temple that he wanted to be known by. He built something in Israel called Herodian and his tomb is in there today. When you go to Israel, it depends on the climate, whether or not you can visit. It's in a highly Palestinian area. Sometimes you can visit, sometimes you can't. Uh, he built Masada, which we will go to if you go to Israel. We'll go to Masada. That's where that the Romans ensieged the last people in the rebellion in 70 AD. And it's not far from Masada that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. So that was Herod the Great. Now this is his son. Uh, he was... Uh, he, uh, he is Herod's, uh, Herod Builder. Um, Herod Antipas is the full brother of Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, which we'll talk about at some other time, and the half-brother of Herod Philip. Herod Philip was married to Herodias, who was Herod Antipas's niece. Am I already losing you? It's like I said, you throw it into a bowl and you stir it around, and pretty soon you're like, which Herod is which? I don't have any idea. Herod Philip is married, married to Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist, his, his half-brother. Uh, she is his niece. When he goes to Rome, he's married to a Nabataean princess who he has married in order to make peace in the region. But when he goes to visit his brother Philip, he is taken by Herodias. So much so that he divorces his Nabataean princess. The Nabataeans were in the area of, uh, the, of uh, Petra, by the way. That was the Nabataeans. And he divorces that princess and he marries Herodias. On her demand, by the way. She, they, he could have married two wives. But Antipas says, but, but Herodias says, I will only marry you if you divorce her. So he divorced her. And by the way, that ends up being his downfall because this Nabataean king fights against Rome successfully and they remove Herod Antipas because of it. When he marries Herodias and brings her back to Judea, Galilee, John the Baptist confronts him. John the Baptist was the confronting type. You are married to another man's wife and it's not right. When Herodias hears about it, she has Herod Antipas arrest him. And the Bible says that Antipas would bring him up and listen to him gladly. He liked to hear John the Baptist preach. There's something about somebody who doesn't want to do what God wants him to do, but wants to hear somebody preach, wants to hear someone with integrity. Maybe that was it. Few people on the planet have really strong, strong integrity. John the Baptist was one of them, where he would call this out publicly. Eventually, you may be familiar with the story, Herodias has her daughter Salome, very beautiful, dance in a party that Antipas had when they, when they had all gotten drunk. She came out and she did a seductive dance. And Antipas says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom to, to Salome. And she's already been talking to her mom. And she says, I want the head of the Baptist. 
And what a horrible way for John the Baptist to end his life from a drunken party and a seductive dance. And they send someone down and they take off his head and they bring the head of John the Baptist up to the party. That is who Jesus is now on his way to go and see. In um, just, just a couple of things here. After murdering John, he wanted to kill Jesus. In Luke 13, 31 and 33, listen to what the Pharisees say. Now, we don't know if this is just the Pharisees trying to get rid of Jesus or whether Herod Antipas really wants to kill Jesus. But listen to what this is. Luke 13, 31 through 33. On that very day, some of the Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here. So this is why we think it might have just been the, the scribes of Pharisees thinking we're going to get rid of Jesus once and for all. Get out and, and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. He had already killed John the Baptist. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox. Now, I don't know what fox means in their day as a pejorative term, but I'm quite sure it was. And it's in the it's in the female. So go tell that vixen. I'm sure it was some kind of an insult. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will be perfected. So he's now speaking of how he is going to die. He wants to kill me, but he can't kill me until the day I'm perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and on the day following, for I cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. No one's going to kill him until it's time to kill him. Now, there is some application here for us. The Bible says that it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. We have a time set by God for our death and then there will be judgment. And like Jesus, I don't think that we can, we're going to die until that time comes. But the Bible does talk about tempting God when you can tempt him. Tempting God is when you go, I'm not going to die until that time comes. So I'm going to go jump off a cliff and see how things end up. Well, the real chair for the rest of your life, maybe. Or God's going to see you in heaven and go, hey, you moved your date up. It was an appointment. You aren't supposed to be here, but here you are. So you can tempt him. But nevertheless, we can be confident that our lives are in God's hands. He wasn't afraid of Herod's threat because he was confident on what he was called to do. He would die young, right? One more thing about Herod. He expressed an interest in being, well, at least an interest in listening to John the Baptist, but seems to have had his heart hardened. Mark uh, 6, 7, 17 and 18 says, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and he, uh, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him do many things and he heard him gladly. So he would call John up and have hear him gladly. And he respected him and he feared him. So Herod had something, some way in which he wanted to seek God. But it was pretty shallow. And by the time he sees Jesus, it's even shallower. So let's pick it up in verse eight. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was extremely glad for he had desired for a long time to see him. He'd been wanting to see Jesus for a while because he heard of the many things about him. 
and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. So he heard of the miracles that Jesus had been doing and he had hoped that he could see some. I had told you before that I first was moved by Christ. I grew up in the Methodist church, but I was first moved by what Jesus did by the show, which is not a good show, by the way, but Jesus Christ Superstar, the old one from the 70s. I was a teenager when I saw it, but I remember first being moved. And Herod, I remember, sings in that song, come and walk across my swimming pool. That's the only line I remember from the song that Herod sang. But that's what Herod said. Come and walk across my swimming pool. And now I read that that's exactly what Herod wanted. He wanted to see Jesus because he wanted to see the miracle, a miracle. Now, there's a way in which I understand that. I've shared with you before that I'm pretty skeptical. I want to know the truth and I don't want to be following a lie. When I was 16 years old or so, we had gone to a camp in Texas and a couple of things happened in that camp. Uh, one of them was we were singing a song called Sometimes Hallelujah. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with that here. Sometimes Hallelujah, sometimes praise the Lord, sometimes gently singing our hearts in one accord. And it's got that line, let's take the, this feeling we're feeling now outside these walls and let it ring. It's such a good song. And um, while I was there, 16, is one of the first clear times God spoke to me and said, I want you to be a pastor. One day, in fact, I felt him say, one day you'll be singing this in a church you're pastor. And that's why I felt him say it. And I remember years ago when they sang that song and I was like, here it is. I felt like God said it to me and he said it to me. But a friend that I had was there and he was in another cabin and he told me the next day, I mean, this is camp, high school camp. Okay, we're all, we're all excited. We're, we're, God's doing some stuff. And he says to me, I saw an angel last night. And I'm like, what do you look like? Well, he was tall, he was white, he had wings, okay, muscles. That's, that's, what, that's what the angel looked like. And um, I, I told God a little bit later on, because we we're having quiet time in this camp. And I told God, I want to see an angel. Let me see an angel. Here's why I wanted to see an angel. Because if I saw an angel, I would know it was true. I was struggling at 16 years old, whether or not it was all true. And I, and I was like, I want to see an angel. And I felt like God say to me, while you're here, you're not going to see an angel. God, God isn't going to give me that kind of evidence. Now I've seen some pretty amazing things. I could tell you about that. I've seen some people healed. I've seen some things, but none of it has been so that I can know what it's about. I think Herod's is a little different. I just think he wants to see the show. He wants to see the miracles. He's heard about them and he obviously killed John. Jesus talked to Pilate. Jesus talked to Caiaphas. Caiaphas said, as the high priest, I adjure you in the name of the living God. Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And from here on out, you're going to see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory and given power and dominion. So he spoke to, to Caiaphas. But listen what he does here. It says, then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus stood silent in front of of Herod. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Is Jesus so mad at, at Herod for killing John the Baptist that he's just not going to say a word to him? Or is there something else? Is there an attitude that you can have that God will not speak to you? That God will not reveal himself to you? Is there an attitude that you can have 
that will allow God to speak to you. And here's what I find in the scriptures. I find that God does not reveal himself to a proud person. God won't do it. And that's when I talk to somebody who says, listen, unless God reveals himself to me in a specific way, I won't believe. And I always tell them, well, it's not, I don't think it's gonna happen. You're, you, God's given you all kinds of evidence. He's given you prophecies. He's given you things that were foretold that Jesus did, like dying for our sins. And you're gonna demand that God give you a special something so you can believe? I'm not sure that's the heart that God responds to. I'll say instead, you should really say to him, Lord, I wanna know if you're real. Lord, show me. God responds to a humble heart. God always does. But God will not respond to an arrogant heart. And I'm just saying, if you're a true seeker and you have that arrogant edge against God, they're like, you show me or I'll never believe. If you're really a seeker, then you got to do what God says. You don't get to do it your way. You don't get to demand that God show you. You have to say, okay, you said you reveal yourself to the humble. So I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to seek you. That's how you've got to seek him if you're going to do it. Because you've you got to come to God on God's terms. You say, why? Because he's God and you're not. Even if you think you're God, you're not. And however much you think of yourself, you're not. And so when you humble yourself, you are now in a position to see whether or not it's true. And God honors humility. And so if you humble yourself and can truly do that, and then God doesn't reach out and speak to you, God doesn't touch your heart, well, then you can go from there but he will never go when you have that arrogant heart. And for whatever reason, he's not gonna say anything to, to Herod. And I just don't, I don't, somehow I don't think it's just because he killed John the Baptist. I think he knows. I'm not gonna give a sign to someone who's not serious about following me. There was always a reason for the sign. Jesus never did a magic trick. If any of you guys are magicians here tonight, I don't wanna offend you, okay? But I get annoyed with magicians. I can do a few tricks myself. I wanted to be a magician one day. That'll shock you, right? I wanted to be a magician and I wanted to be a weatherman and I wanted to be a preacher. So they're all three kind of similar if you think about it. They all three kind of have that similar aspect to them. But when, when I run into a magician, I've, I've got a few friends who are, a couple in ministry. And when I, when I see them and talking to them, and all of a sudden they're like, they pull something out or they pull, I'm like, just stop. That annoys me. I know it's a trick. I know what it is. I know it's, I know you've practiced this a thousand times and so you can flip a card out of my ear. I understand. I don't want to see it. I don't care. I just, I just don't care. And Jesus is like, I'm not doing a trick for you. He's not going to, he's not going to flash a sign in the sky just to impress you. He already came to this earth and fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. He's given you the evidence. You can examine that and believe or not. It's up to you. You get a choice. That's what this is all about. You get to believe. It says, then Herod, verse 11, with some of his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. The Romans would say king of the Jews. We talked about this last week. Jews would not. They would say he is the Messiah, the king. Then, then Pilate came back, are you king of the Jews? Herod Agrippa, I mean, Herod the Great's name was, his title was King of the Jews. 
Herod Antipas didn't get the title king. He got the title Tetrarch. They divided Herod the Great's kingdom into fours. And so each one had a fourth, and that's what Tetrarch means. So Herod Antipas is a Tetrarch, not a king. And so Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus by killing the babies of Bethlehem. And now his son takes a royal robe and mocks Jesus for being the king of the Jews. It's like this circle that's come all the way around from Herod the Great claiming to be the king of the Jews when he's an Edomite and not Jewish to the actual king of the Jews being mocked for being the king of the Jews by having a royal robe put on him. It says they arrayed him, uh, uh, him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. Remember, Pilate had brought shields into Herod's palace and Herod said, get them out. And, and Pilate wouldn't do it. So Herod sent, he said, I'm going to send a message to Tiberius. He, and, and Herod said, do what you want to do. He sent the message to Tiberius. Tiberiusly openly rebuked Pilate and said, get the shields out of Herod's palace. So that's how they didn't like each other already. But there's something about their judging over interaction with this man who could do miracles. And if Herod heard about him, it makes sense that Pilate would have heard about him, that they became friends. From that day forward, there was, he thought it was perhaps clever and funny to put a royal robe on somebody accused of being the king of the Jews. Whatever it was that amused Pilate, from that day forward, they became friends. So Pilate has been ineffective. He wanted Herod to make a command, to have him crucified or to let him go. He wanted to get it out of his arena, not because he was afraid to kill a Jewish man. He could care less about Jewish life. That is evident in the life of Peter. None of us are saying that. When the critics go, well, you just think that Herod didn't want to kill an innocent man. Look, I know Herod had no qualms of killing an innocent man. He didn't want to do what the religious leader said. That's stronger, a stronger drive for Pilate than whether or not he kills an innocent man. So verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man. Second time, he's declared him as innocent concerning those things which you accuse him. Nor neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chasten him and release him. This is a compromise, but it is a wicked compromise. Compromise is necessary in marriage and it's a good thing. Wicked compromises like this are bad things. I don't find any fault in him, but I'm going to chasten him. Now, chastening would mean scourging. This was a, this is a third degree. The, the Romans used scourging to get people to confess. They would start off by, by tying you to a post, stretching your back out, tying your hands around the post. And then they would take a cat of nine tails with, with glass and metal in it. And they would lash you with it. And then every lash got harder until there were 39 of them, harder every time. So that when you confessed, they would get lighter 
And the more you confessed, the lighter they would get. The Bible says in Isaiah, Jesus, like a sheep before the shearers, is silent. So he was silent. He had nothing to confess. He took the full weight of the lashes eventually, but he should not be threatening to scourge him because he's innocent. I don't find, this tells us that he doesn't care about, he doesn't care about whether or not he treats Jesus right. Right? Because if you thought he cared about that, he would say, I don't find any fault in him, I'm going to let him go. But I'm going to find no fault in him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to scourge him and then I'll let him go. Maybe you'll be happy with that. That's what he's thinking, I'm sure. And so um, it goes on to say, I therefore will chasten him for it is necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. So there is this, this rule that they have that they release somebody at a feast and it's necessary for him to do it. And so he's thinking now, I'm going to release Jesus. And that way it will be the crowds who release him because he's going to give them a choice and not me. He didn't care whether they choose Jesus or not. Other than the religious leaders and what they're doing. Now, this is a custom that a governor would release a Jewish prisoner at a feast. There are no records of this happening under Pontius Pilate. And so some scholars say it didn't happen. But we don't have that many records about Pontius Pilate. We have three events, two of them by Josephus and one of them by Tatticus. It didn't encompass all of that he did. So just because something is missing, Rome did this regularly. Rome would let choices of prisoners go. Rome would let gladiators go in the arenas. They would have gladiators and they would say, who do you want us to release? And they would free a gladiator and the people could choose. This very much falls in line with the kind of things that Rome did. Now, this is Pilate's idea. Chasing him, it's compromise, and then maybe he can let him go. Verse 18, and they all cried out with one voice saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now, what Luke doesn't tell us is that he brought out a prisoner by the name of Barabbas. The name Barabbas in Hebrew is a son of the father. And the earliest manuscripts, some of the earliest manuscripts say his name is Jesus Barabbas. So Joshua in Hebrew is a very common name. And it seems that this guy's name, if we can trust some of the earlier manuscripts, was Joshua Barabbas and you had Joshua of Nazareth. Who should I release to you? Barabbas or the one you call the Messiah? He didn't use their first names when he did that. And now he's hoping that the crowd will say Barabbas in verse 19, who had been thrown into prison. This tells us why. For a certain rebellion made in a city and for murder. So this guy's a murderer. He's in for rebellion. He's going to release Barabbas. Probably figures, no, they're not going to take him. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them a third time, why? What evil has he done? I find no reason for death in him. The third time he declared him innocent. I will therefore chasten him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with a loud voice that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and the chief priest prevailed. So Pilate gave the sentence. Matthew tells us he did it in a very dramatic way. He brought out a, a wash basin and he washed his hands. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. Take him and crucify him. So very dramatic, Pilate. But you can't free yourself of that responsibility by washing your hands of it. Even if you 
don't, even if there could have been a riot, he should have done what is right. But Pilate was who Pilate was. And this is the kind of things Pilate would do. So Pilate gave the sentence, verse 24, that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested. Now, one of my titles is, did Pilate trap himself? And I believe he did, which is why you would think I would have that title, right? Because as soon as he said, which one do you want me to release? And they said Barabbas, he can't now let Jesus go. Because he said, I'm going to release to you one of these. Which one? They said Barabbas, now he's bound to crucify Jesus. It's going down that road now. He has trapped himself. In all of his maneuvering to try to make it happen, he has trapped himself. Was he manipulated by the religious leaders? Yes, because manipulation is when you don't want to do something, but someone manipulates you and finally makes you do it. And what Luke doesn't tell us is that they say to him, if you don't, if you let this man go, you are no friends of Caesar's. One of the other gospels tell us. And another time they said, we have no king but Caesar. He said, you want me to crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So they released him, the one requested for rebellion and murder and threw him, um, had, had been thrown in prison, but he did, delivered Jesus to their will. Now let's consider Barabbas for a moment. Jesus died on the cross for everyone. The, there is a provision for all sin on the cross. Every person alive that has ever lived had provision made for them on the cross. The Bible says Jesus died once for all, which means he died for Barabbas. Now, some people say, well, what if you aren't saved that he didn't die for you? No, he did die for you. I use this analogy. If after the service tonight, maybe I'll do this on some Saturday, but I'm not going to do it now until I save the money to do it. I brought in some fruit trucks, guys. And, and as a gift from me, you just got to go out. All, all the food trucks paid for. You guys can all go out and get your food. I paid for all of you. And some of you guys go, all right, just ate dinner. I'm not hungry. Thanks, but no thanks. So you leave without getting food. But everybody else goes out in the food trucks and gets their food. Did I buy food for everybody? Did everybody get the food? So Jesus died for everybody, but not everybody gets the salvation. Jesus died for everyone, including Barabbas, who was let go. The thief on the cross was probably a cohort of Barabbas. Maybe Jesus took the exact place of Barabbas on the cross. And this is an example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when we, when he died, he died for us. Let me read you this passage. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. This is an explanation of what happened on the cross. Think of the substitution for Barabbas. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. We, are reckon, we were separated from God, but we are reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, who has given us a ministry of reconciliation. And now we go out and encourage people to be reconciled. That is, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses, trespasses on them. Now, stay with me here. Don't, don't let me lose you here. Remember, Satan blinds the eyes of those who do not believe? Could Satan be blinding your eyes at the very truth of how salvation works? That Jesus reconciled us to God on the cross and we now have the ministry of reconciliation? Then verse 19, that is 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though we were pleading, as though he were, God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what we do. We, we implore people, be reconciled to God because Jesus made a way to reconcile us. How? Verse 21, for he, he, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus know something he never knew, sin, so we could know something we never knew, righteousness. Barabbas is an example of that. Now, I don't know whether Barabbas ever got saved, but he is one Christ died for, just as he did for you. And if you have never reconciled to God, then reconcile tonight. Realize that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. And if you believe it, receive it, and stand on it, you will be saved. When you are reconciled to God, then you are saved. And Barabbas is the great example of it. This is the gospel. It is the power of the gospel unto salvation. That's what it is. The gospel saves. Now, three quick things in closing, because I'm late, which I know on Saturday night it's a shock, isn't it, that I would be late? Just because you want to hear religious things doesn't mean you want God. Perfect example, Herod Antipas. Just because you might be interested to come to church and hear religious things doesn't mean you want God. Are you humble? Do you want to hear from him? Do you really want to speak to him? Will you really let God challenge you, change you? Number two, better to submit yourself to the will of God than to try to walk a tightrope. And here I'm speaking to Pilate. Pilate has the very Messiah in front of him. And Jesus talked to Pilate, remember? Jesus said to Pilate, anybody who walks in the truth will come to me. For all who know the truth come to me. Pilate's response, what is truth? Turned around and walked off. And in the Greek and Roman world, there was in the philosophies, there's a lot of philosophy about truth. So Pilate was like, oh, here we go, truth. What is truth? He had no desire to be right with God. He just was ruling this faraway place and happened to come across the Messiah and is known as the man who crucified him. He was condemned under Pontius Pilate. It's in our creeds. It's in our Christian creeds. Pilate's name is in our Christian creeds. We say, as the things we believe, we believe that he was born of a virgin. We believe that he rose from the dead. We believe that he was condemned under Pontius Pilate. And we believe that he was crucified for our sins. Number three, what happened to Barabbas physically can happen to you spiritually tonight and physically because your body will be renewed to you one day. He, he takes your place. He's reconciling you to himself by the work of the cross, that's what it is. And that's what the enemy blinds the eyes of those who don't believe. It is amazing to me how I can see it when I give altar calls. I'll give altar calls. And right when I get to the place where I start to talk about the substitutionary death of Jesus, him dying on the cross, a perfect man for a sinful world. And I see the distractions happening. So much so that you guys may have noticed 
that I repeat it. I'll get to it and I'll go and then I'll start all over again. I'll, Jesus died on the cross. He went and died for you so that if you receive him today, then you can be saved. What do I mean by saved? Reconciled to God. You can be reconciled to him. Caiaphas missed it. Herod missed it. Pilate missed it. But you don't have to miss it. Stand with me today, would you? And let's pray. Father, thank you so much for us being able to look at your word today. What a great passage, Father, for us to look at. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would really speak to us, that you would help us, that we would not be like Caiaphas, Pilate, or Herod, but that we would be those who receive, believe, and stand and are saved by the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.